From New York, this is Democracy Now! The death of Her Majesty the Queen is a huge shock to the nation and to the world. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96, 70 years after she took the throne. We'll look at her life and legacy of Britain's longest-serving monarch with British journalist Ash Sharkar, Harvard professor Maya Jasanoff, who just wrote a piece in the New York Times headlined, Mourn the Queen, Not Her Empire, and University of Cambridge professor Priya Gopal, author of Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent. The passing of Queen Elizabeth II is a solemn moment. As we mark this historic occasion, the time may have come to reflect on the institution that she was part of, the British monarchy, and the enormous wealth, privilege, power, and inequality that it represents. Then, no sacrifice zones. Frontline communities from Appalachia rally in Washington to protest the Mountain Valley Pipeline and legislation to fast-track fossil fuel projects. The voices and stories of the people gathered here today say more than no sacrifice zones. We say more than stop MVP. We say let us live and let us thrive. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Southern California is bracing for torrential rainfall as Tropical Storm K moves into the region, packing winds of up to 70 miles an hour. The storm expected to bring up to a year's worth of precipitation. But instead of relief from a historic drought, officials are warning of dangerous flash floods and high winds that could whip up raging wildfires. Over the past week, the western U.S. has broken nearly 1,000 temperature records for September, with excessive heat alerts affecting some 42 million people. In China, forecasters predict above-average temperatures will continue through the end of the month after China recorded its hottest August on record. In Europe, officials say this summer ranked as the hottest on record, surpassing the previous record set just last year. Meanwhile, researchers in Greenland say the Arctic Territory experienced its largest September melt event on record, one typically only seen during peak summer months. This comes after a new report from Climate Central found rising sea levels could flood more than 4.4 million acres of U.S. coastline by mid-century, with some 650,000 privately held properties set to fall below tidal boundaries. Hundreds of climate protesters rallied in Washington, D.C. Thursday to demand lawmakers reject changes to how the federal government grants permits for oil and gas projects. The activists say the proposed reforms— would weaken environmental laws, limit court challenges to oil and gas projects, and clear the way for new pipelines, including the proposed Mountain Valley frack gas pipeline in West Virginia. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he agreed to the permitting reforms to win the support of West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin for the Inflation Reduction Act, which President Biden has called the biggest step forward on climate ever. On Thursday, the White House said it supports the permitting reforms. Meanwhile, Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders took to the Senate floor to condemn what he called Senator Manchin's dirty side deal. We can listen to the fossil fuel industry and the politicians they pay, 
who are spending huge amounts of money on lobbying and campaign contributions to pass this dirty side deal. Or we can listen to the scientists and the environmental community who are telling us loudly and clearly to reject this ideal and eliminate the 15 billion in tax breaks and subsidies Congress is already providing to big oil and gas companies each and every year. Ukraine's government says it's made significant progress in a counteroffensive aimed at retaking ground seized by Russia. On Thursday, President Volodymyr Zelensky said Ukrainian forces had liberated more than 1,000 square kilometers of territory since the start of September. Zelensky made the remarks from Kyiv Thursday evening after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken pledged to support Ukraine for, quote, as long as it takes. Blinken was in Ukraine's capital on an unannounced visit where he touted the latest tranche of U.S. military aid to Ukraine. Ukraine, nearly $2.7 billion. We also notified our Congress of our intent uh, to provide Ukraine with an additional $1 billion in what we call foreign military financing. This is for longer-term uh, acquisition of uh, systems. Uh, we're also providing $1 billion additional dollars in financing for our European allies and partners who've been doing so much to support Ukraine. On Monday, a coalition of peace activists will kick off a nationwide week of action on Ukraine, demanding a ceasefire and diplomatic solutions to the crisis. Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin said in a statement, the White House and Congress are fueling this war with a steady stream of weapons instead of pushing for talks to end the conflict. That's why we, the people, have to rise up with a demand of negotiations, not escalation, she said. Elizabeth II, the Queen of the United Kingdom and the British Commonwealth, died Thursday at the age of 96. Elizabeth held the British throne for seven decades, second only to Louis XIV of France as the longest reigning monarch in history. Her son Charles has now become Britain's new king, taking the name of King Charles III. The Queen's death prompted tributes from British allies across the globe, including President Biden, while former British colonies have used the occasion to call on the UK to make amends for colonial crimes. We'll have more on the life and legacy of Elizabeth II after headlines. Britain's new prime minister, Liz Truss, said Thursday she's lifting a moratorium on hydraulic fracturing—that's fracking—which has been in effect since 2019. Truss said it's part of a larger plan to increase domestic oil and gas development aimed at lowering energy costs across the U.K. We will end the moratorium on extracting our huge reserves of shale, which could get glass flowing as soon as six months, where there is local support for it. The plan was swiftly condemned by environmentalists, climate campaigners and some opposition members of parliament. The civil disobedience group Extinction Rebellion promised more confrontational actions like blockades. One activist told The Guardian, we'll pull out all the stops. This time, we won't settle for a moratorium either. We're just going to keep on hammering this until we get the proper ban on fracking, they said. South Carolina's Senate has failed to pass a total ban on abortion that would have prohibited the procedure without exceptions for rape or incest. But lawmakers approve more restrictions to its existing state law, which bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. That law is currently blocked by the South Carolina Supreme Court due to ongoing litigation. The South Carolina Senate has proposed reducing the time rape and incest survivors have to seek an abortion from 20 to 12 weeks. In related news. 
issues. The Michigan Supreme Court's allowing voters to decide in November whether to enshrine abortion rights to the state constitution. The ballot initiative gathered over 700,000 signatures in support. This comes after a judge Wednesday struck down a 1931 Michigan anti-abortion law that prohibited the procedure unless the pregnant person's life was at risk. The Justice Department said Thursday it will appeal a federal judge's decision to appoint a special master to review whether the FBI properly seized documents from Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. The appeal comes after U.S. District Court Judge Aileen Cannon ordered the Justice Department to halt its review of thousands of classified documents recovered by agents executing a search warrant on Trump's home on August 8th. Many of the documents were marked top secret. Judge Cannon was nominated to the U.S. District Court for Southern District of Florida in 2020 by then-President Donald Trump. Her ruling this week led to widespread calls for her impeachment. Slate magazine legal writer Mark Joseph Stern tweeted, The problem, of course, is that Cannon is not a real judge, but a Trump judge and one of the most corrupt of the bunch, he said. Donald Trump's former White House political adviser, Steve Bannon, has surrendered to police in New York, where he faces state charges. He defrauded donors to an anti-immigrant nonprofit called We Build the Wall. Bannon was first charged by federal prosecutors in 2020, but received a pardon from Donald Trump ahead of his trial. Two of Bannon's co-defendants later pleaded guilty to the federal charges. New York Attorney General Letitia James announced the new state charge Thursday, saying Bannon illegally pocketed donations that were given to fund sections of a barrier wall to be built along the U.S.-Mexico border. He basically stole millions of dollars to line his own pocket and those of other politically connected people. And today, he and Bill, we, Bill the Wald, are being charged for defrauding these donors out of more than $15 million and for laundering the proceeds to further advance and to conceal the fraud. A Democratic National Committee panel has rejected a proposal to ban dark money funding, quote, during any and all Democratic primary elections, unquote. The resolution, authored by Nevada Democratic Party Chair Judith Whitmer, would have also established procedures to investigate dark money groups and discipline DNC members for accepting donations from anonymous donors. The DNC's rejection of a ban comes after dark money flooded Democratic primary races across the country this year, targeting progressive candidates seeking to challenge Democratic incumbents. Public health experts are hailing a new malaria vaccine after it showed 80 percent efficacy at preventing the disease in a clinical trial of children in Burkina Faso. The vaccine was produced by researchers at the University of Oxford, who published their results in the British medical journal The Lancet this week. The vaccine is relatively cheap, easy to produce, and the world's largest vaccine manufacturer, the Serum Institute of India, says it can produce at least 200 million doses annually. Malaria is among the world's deadliest infectious diseases, and the mosquito that carries it has been described as the world's deadliest animal. In 2020, more than 640,000 people died of malaria, the vast majority of them in Africa. North Korea's leader pledged Thursday his nation will never give up nuclear weapons as it seeks to counter the threat of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. Kim Jong-un made the comments at a gathering of North Korea's parliament where members Thursday approved a new law allowing North Korea to carry out a preventive nuclear first strike while declaring the nation's nuclear arms status irreversible.
As long as nuclear weapons remain on Earth and imperialism remains and maneuvers of the United States and its followers against our republic are not terminated, our work to strengthen nuclear force will not cease. And hundreds of Google and Amazon tech workers are demanding the corporations drop a $1.2 billion program known as Project Nimbus, which will provide advanced artificial intelligence tools to the Israeli government and military. The No Tech for Apartheid campaign led protests Thursday in New York, San Francisco, Seattle and Durham, North Carolina. This is Ariel Koren, a Jewish former Google employee who says she was forced to quit due to her activism and support of Palestinian rights. Today, for the first time across these four cities, over 10 Google workers will now be going public, unafraid with their names, to denounce Project Nimbus and tell our companies, Google and Amazon, that workers say no tech for apartheid. You can see our interview with Ariel Koren at democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96, 70 years after she took the throne. We'll look at her life and legacy. Stay with us. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she changes from day to day. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I've got to get a belly full of wine. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, someday I'm going to make her mine, oh yeah. Someday I'm gonna make her mine Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl But she never does a thing for me Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl But she keeps the worst company All the lords and the ladies in waiting All crawling in the dirt like swine Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl But I hope she's the end of the line Oh yeah, I hope she's the end of the line Her Majesty's living in a land of curtsies a world of bluish blood and Nazis, yeah Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl But I think she ought to call it a day Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl Without one good reason to stay I'd like to take her for a whiskey or two But I've got a lot of things to do Her Majesty's a throwaway song Just short of a chorus or two, oh yeah Short of a chorus or two Chumba Wumba, covering the Beatles song, Her Majesty. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the life and legacy of Queen Elizabeth II. She died Thursday at the age of 96. She spent 70 years on the throne, longer than any other British monarch. Her son Charles has now become Britain's new king, taking the name King Charles III. In a statement Thursday, King Charles said, quote, We mourn profoundly the passing of a cherished sovereign and a much-loved mother. I know her loss will be deeply felt throughout the country, the realms, and the Commonwealth, and by countless people around the world, unquote. Queen Elizabeth was coronated in 1953, less than a decade after the end of World War II. Her last public appearance was on Tuesday, when she formally appointed Liz Truss to be Britain's new prime minister. Truss was the 15th prime minister to serve under the Queen. Truss spoke Thursday after Buckingham Palace announced the Queen's death. It is a day of great loss, but Queen Elizabeth II leaves a great legacy. Today, the crown passes, as it has done for more than a thousand years, 
to our new monarch, our new head of state, His Majesty King Charles III. With the King's family, we mourn the loss of his mother. And as we mourn, we must come together as a people to support him, to help him bear the awesome responsibility that he now carries for us all. We offer him our loyalty and devotion, just as his mother devoted so much to so many for so long. Across the world, nations paid tribute to the queen. In a statement, President Biden described the queen as, quote, a stateswoman of unmatched dignity and constancy who deepened the bedrock alliance between the United Kingdom and the United States, unquote. On Thursday, signed a condolence book at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C., and spoke briefly about the queen. I had the opportunity to meet her before she passed, and she was an incredibly gracious and decent woman. The thoughts and prayers of the American people are with the people of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth in their grief. The death of Queen Elizabeth has also led to new calls for Britain to make amends for colonial-era crimes. Carnegie Mellon professor Uju Anya made headlines Thursday for her sharp criticism of the Queen. The Nigerian-born professor wrote, quote, "'If anyone expects me to express anything but disdain for the monarch who supervised a government that sponsored the genocide that massacred and displaced half my family, and the consequences of which those alive today are still trying to overcome, you can keep wishing upon a star.'" In a separate tweet, Professor Uju Anya wrote, quote, I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. Twitter removed her tweet. Birmingham City University professor Kahinde Andrews, who is of British African Caribbean heritage, also reflected Thursday on the Queen's legacy. I guess it depends what you think a good job of being Queen is. So if a good job of being queen is to represent white supremacy and to represent that link to colonialism, then, yeah, I think she's done a very good job. And I think if you look at the royal family as an institution, I mean, it's, it's still very, very strong. It's weathered some heavy storms, including Prince Andrew, Meghan Markle and all this, and still going strong. And she's still very, very popular. So I guess on a, on a, on a has she kept the, the image of the royal family mafia very, very established? Then, yes, I think she's done a good job. To talk more about the death of Queen Elizabeth II and the future of the British monarchy, we're joined by British journalist Ash Sarker. Harvard professor Maya Jasanoff, whose New York Times guest essay is headlined, Mourn the Queen, Not Her Empire, and University of Cambridge professor Priya Gopal, author of Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance in British Descent. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Professor Gopal, let's begin with you. Your thoughts on the death of the longest-reigning British monarch, Queen Elizabeth II. Well, it is the end of a long, uh, eventful, rich life of a person uh, who was who had a ringside seat at many important global events and, and indeed a role uh, in those events. I find myself appreciating the circumstances um, in which she passed. Uh, she had good care. She had uh, good medical supervision. She was in secure shelter in a place that she loved. And I am glad for that. Um, I do wonder uh, whether, given the state that Britain is in today, which is in a state of crisis uh, preceding uh, her passing, whether many British pensioners will have the same easeful passing 
this winter? Uh, I fear I fear not. I think many people will be in insecure housing without heat, potentially without food, and certainly without access, without immediate access to good medical care. So I'm really stuck, struck by the distinction or the difference uh, between the circumstances of Queen Elizabeth's passing and what many of her subjects may have to endure this coming winter in a country where uh, you know, the monarchy really has come to represent the deep uh, and profound and, and grave inequality and uh, uh, gap that, you know, uh, is going to be a problem in, in the months to come. Ash Sarkar, you're on the ground there in London. Um, you're a journalist, a contributing editor at Navarra Media. Um, what is your response to the death and the legacy of Queen Elizabeth? Well, I suppose my personal response is one of curiosity, interest. There are very few moments that could be described as truly historic, but the death of Britain's longest reigning monarch is, of course, definitely historic. We tend to measure our periods of historical time here in the UK by kings and queens rather than other things that might be going on politically. So it is, I think, pretty central to our national self-image. I think one thing to perhaps explain for American viewers is just how top-down and choreographed the national mourning is. When Princess Diana died in 1997, it was very much a bottom-up outpouring of grief. You had people spontaneously laying flowers outside Buckingham Palace. And in fact, the palace was very surprised by the emotional response which was offered up by the country. When the Queen dies, it is a different thing. The BBC immediately changes its programming, so there will be no comedies being scheduled between now and the funeral. Even the music on the radio changes to more sombre playlists. Television presenters are all dressed in black, and even though this isn't something which is directed by either the government or royal protocol, public events like football matches are being suspended. Now, one of the really critical things is that parliamentary business is also suspended. One of the things that Priya mentioned is that we are, of course, in the middle of this dreadful cost of living crisis. One of the main causes behind that is that energy bills are out of control. Now, parliament will be suspended perhaps for seven days, perhaps for 10. And depending on how those days are calculated, whether it's like business days or whether it's like calendar days, that could mean that the opportunity to pass the legislation needed to control energy prices, that window of opportunity closes. Now, the government will be negotiating with the palace in order to try and make the time to pass that legislation. But I think very few people would consider it an ideal political system where an elective government effectively has to haggle with the institution of the royal family, the institution of the palaces, in order to get vital governmental business done. And Professor Maya Jasanoff, um, you wrote this piece in the New York Times, the headline being, Mourn the Queen, Not Her Empire. Talk about the Queen and the Empire. The Queen was born into a world that looked radically different in certain ways from the one that she departed yesterday. She, you know, 
came, was born in 1926 at a time when something on the order of one in five or one in six people in the world was a subject of uh, of her family. Uh, and uh, it's an astonishing extent of global power. Uh, when she became queen in 1952, uh, the prime minister was Winston Churchill. The leaders of the USSR, China, and the US were respectively Stalin, Mao, and Truman. Um, these were figures who were, of course, you know, associated now in our minds with a with a vanished uh, era, and the Queen herself long, long outlived them. And I think one of the consequences of that is that the empire, which largely disintegrated under her, the course of her tenure on the throne, had this kind of public face in the form of the Queen that actually survived well into the 21st century. So, you know, it's, I, I find myself reflecting on this occasion that, you know, of course, some of the things that, that Priya pointed out, the longevity of a person who, you know, by virtue of a uniquely privileged birth, had a ringside seat to, to all of these amazing events and also had a remarkable passage into her later life. But, you know, normally the death of a 96-year-old woman wouldn't account for, you know, any headlines whatsoever. Um, and the fact that she was still sort of with us into this radically new world, I, I find, you know, a, really a, a sort of a moment for reflection on what kind of visions people have for a global order. And, what, and I think this is a really important moment for trying to think through what new visions might look like in a period, obviously, of uh, both national crisis for the UK and uh, in many ways, global crisis with, of course, climate change uh, and the rise of authoritarianism. Uh, and on that issue of, well, many commentators, and it's not only British media that is only covering this, the U.S. media, especially the cable channels, uh, are almost exclusively um, uh, covering uh, just the Queen's death. Um, but if you can talk about— um, Queen Elizabeth, uh, when it comes to one of their comments uh, of the commentators, she was deeply knowledgeable about foreign policy, which goes to the issue of the British Empire. Um, and what we can—should understand about the 20th century. We'll start with Professor Jasanoff, then to Priya Gopal. Sure. So, the, the Queen, in her role as uh, monarch— she was never an empress in name. That title had been stripped from the British monarchy with the independence of India and Pakistan in 1947. But she did preside over the consolidation and massive expansion of the Commonwealth, into which most of the former British colonies uh, were assimilated, became members. And her role as head of the Commonwealth was manifestly something that she took incredibly seriously. Now, she uh, presumably undertook this, at least in part, uh, out of the idea that she was sustaining certain sorts of values that members of her class had long associated with uh, their uh, imperial rule, for example, uh, defense of constitutionalism and the rule of law and human rights and so on. She also personally clearly uh, was involved in uh, agitating uh, to the extent that any monarch does in an extremely limited that they allow themselves uh, against uh, apartheid and, and so on. But 
you know, it's also really important to note that the Commonwealth was a vehicle designed to be a vehicle for the perpetuation of British global influence, even when uh, the, the colonies chose to break away from that. So, you know, to the extent that the Queen kind of leaned into that role, she was part and parcel of a perpetuation of myths of imperial benevolence uh, that that carried on deep into the 20th century. Another quick point I would make is that the Queen has these had these weekly meetings, more or less, with all of her prime ministers. And many, many of the uh, prime ministers have commented on, uh, as you as you say, how knowledgeable she was and what good advice she gave and so on. Uh, but it's interesting that this is a part of the government business of the UK that is not on the record at all. And although the power of the monarchy in all sorts of ways is, is really rather negligible in terms of you know, their explicit ability to dictate policy and so on, the fact that every single week the prime minister has an audience with the queen uh, that is not monitored or documented or anything of the kind is, is quite a remarkable black box, I think, at the center of the British state. Professor Priya Gopal, uh, you wrote the book Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent. We usually speak to you at the University of Cambridge. Um, can you uh, elaborate more on the British Empire, uh, looking at Africa, looking at India, looking at—and in a moment, we're going to go directly to the Caribbean, to Barbados. Yeah, I mean, I slightly wonder— uh, if we, in fact, live in a deeply different world uh, from the one that she came into uh, in 1952. Let us remember that when she became queen at treetops uh, uh, in Kenya, uh, Britain had just commenced a brutal, uh, vicious insurgency that uh, carried on for several years. Um, in recent years, we have had Kenyans who were tortured uh, by the British, uh, uh, raised lawsuits uh, successfully in some cases uh, about the, you know, around the, the vicious violence of the British state um, at that point. On the matter of whether, uh, you know, and I, I do wonder whether we actually live in a deeply different world. We live in a world where uh, formally uh, the British crown is no longer an imperial crown, but let us remember that Elizabeth II was, um, in a sense, obsessed with the Commonwealth, um, made sure that Charles III would also be head of the Commonwealth. And we have to probe uh, this cozy notion uh, that somehow empire ended beautifully and then there was this happy nation of families uh, that was the Commonwealth and uh, she sat at the top of the table um, and now Charles III will sit at the top of that table. I think, um, as uh, Maya just suggested, uh, much of that order has not changed. But the other thing I, I want to say is that we often talk about monarchy as an anachronism. So, you know, she came into a world where monarchy was um, uh, normal and now it's an anachronism. Actually, uh, we still have a world order in which uh, both in Britain and in the colonies, there is enormous concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a few. And uh, monarchy really in a sense, is not anachronistic. It represents exactly what we are ruled by across the world in the U.S. 
as much as anywhere else, power and privilege and wealth in the hands of a few, uh, which the rest of us are then um, invited to worship and, and think of as perfectly normal. Uh, the monarchy is really one aspect of plutocracy ruled by the wealthy. And that is something that hasn't essentially changed uh, from 1952 uh, to 2022. If anything, uh, here we are again, ruled by a handful of oligarchs uh, across the world uh, as you know, ordinary people in Britain and beyond suffer deprivation. So I, I slightly wonder if we do, in fact, live uh, in a very different world uh, from the one that uh, she inherited. And, and, you know, in terms of the knowledge of foreign policy, I think what it is, is that she uh, was very faithful and dutiful, as, as the word is often used in the British press, about representing the British state's understanding of its own foreign policy. Uh, I have no evidence that she was knowledgeable about what was happening in the colonies, that she was knowledgeable uh, about the enormous violence uh, with which empire ended in many places. When she came to power, there were you know, brutal counterinsurgencies, not just in Kenya, but in Malaya and Cyprus. Um, many, many of the records of the crimes of the British state at that point have been destroyed willfully. Uh, by the uh, by the British state. So, you know, how much did she know? We, we, we won't know that. But did she speak on these matters? Could she speak on these matters? Was she knowledgeable uh, about what took place? I'm afraid um, I, I have no evidence uh, of anything other than sh that she and the institution of the monarchy perpetuates the British states and the British elites' narrative uh, of, of itself and of Britain. Well, in November, Barbados officially removed Queen Elizabeth II as its head of state, freeing itself from the British monarchy after nearly 400 years of colonization. Prince Charles joined the ceremony, where he formally acknowledged Britain's, quote, appalling atrocity of slavery in the Caribbean. Joining us now from Christchurch, Barbados, is Pedro Welsh. He is a historian, a former chair of the Barbados Reparations Task Force. <clears throat> Professor Welsh, you were in Britain when the Queen's death was announced. You just flew back to Barbados. Thank you so much for joining us on the phone. Can you respond to the Queen's death and what the monarchy has meant for Barbados? Thank you very much, um most certainly, um, the, the passing of, of, of the Queen um, has some importance with respect to the, the, the very, um, very, very fragmented uh, relationship between the various colonies in the Caribbean, and including Barbados and, and, and Britain. I, I'm saying this because um, when one looks at the history of the monarchy and the history of the slave trade, um, the British monarchy was, was embedded in the institutions that finance the beginnings of the slave trade from Britain. Um, and throughout the centuries, um, the British monarchy continued to benefit from the, the colonial exploitation of the, of the plantation colonies in the, in the Caribbean. But having said that, we are into a very interesting period in which there are a number of things that tend to coincide. The first one is that monarchy is really not an anachronism when it comes to people of African descent, because there were monarchies in Africa. And in fact, the very first slave rebellion that was planned, that we know of, in Barbados, 
in that first rebellion, the enslaved people, in fact, planned to install a monarch in Barbados as king of Barbados. So the notion of a monarchy is not, is not necessarily foreign to African sensibilities. And it is in that context that there's a tremendous amount of respect, if not necessarily agreement, but a lot of respect um, for an institution of monarchy, an institution that speaks of power. Um, when one um, looks at the whole question of, 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 of the, the persistence of a parliamentary system in the Caribbean and in Barbados, in which the monarch was the head of state, the queen was the head of state, that reflects in part the very successful uh, acculturation of the of the subject populations into aspects of a British culture. So that I think most Barbadians, most Caribbean people will will view her passing certainly with, with, with the respect that one would give to any person of authority. Um, but at the same time, there are some of us who understand the history of the of our people, who understand that that the enslavement of our ancestors has led to a legacy of of, of, of deprivation, a legacy that still has has to be sorted out. That is one of the reasons why we have the the CARICOM Reparations Commission, uh, which is seeking to get Britain and other colonial, former colonial powers to acknowledge the tremendous harm that has been done. So back again, finally to the question, there will be respect. And the respect that, that all that Africans generally give to, to uh, a patriarch or a matriarch and, and, and their passing. But that respect does not necessarily mean that we have forgotten what that monarchy did uh, in, in, in this institutional uh, phase, what it did to our people in the past. Ash Sarker, um, I know you have to leave. We go back from Barbados to London. You're a journalist there. If you can talk about what's acceptable to talk about in this time of mourning, and I think the mourning the new king, uh, Charles III, has announced will go uh, something like seven days beyond the funeral, not clear when that will be. What is ex acceptable? And also, if you can talk about now— King Charles III, um, Prince Charles. In terms of what's considered acceptable by the media, it is very, very little. So in some ways, this is an opportunity to redraw the boundaries of legitimate opinion ever tighter. It's still technically against the law to call for the abolition of the monarchy on British media. It's not a law that's enforced, but I think that tells you something about the framing of these issues. I think that one of the problems that we found consistently in this country is that the monarchy has managed to adapt itself to a totally revolutionized media environment in a way which has consolidated a lot of their cultural power. Now, this wasn't always going to be a certain thing. During the 1990s, tabloid press intrusion in terms of the uh, status of the marriages of Prince Charles and Princess Diana, of uh, Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York, and Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, really 
threatened to demystify and kill the deference which the press had traditionally shown the royal family forever. Now, the Queen as an individual managed to largely float above that kind of fray, but it did threaten the monarchy um, in terms of their public image for quite some time. That era, I think, is drawn to a close. And in fact, what we've seen is a renewed insistence on deference. One way in which you can see that really clearly is the suspension of the football matches this weekend. Now, as anyone knows about England, we are a football mad nation. This wasn't something which even happened after the death of George VI, the Queen's father. So this is something which is relatively new. And I think that tells you something about that top down mood of national mourning that I was just describing earlier. When it comes to Prince Charles, he is the oldest uh, monarch we've had at the time of the ascension to the throne. I think that does pose some difficulties for the nation's self-image. The queen coming to the throne as a young woman, the mother of a growing family, was something which was really integral to her public image. She was seen as a maternal and grandmotherly figure, and that was an image which was very carefully cultivated by her press advisors. Um, Priya has been talking a lot about uh, the nature of the Commonwealth and the way in which it re-embodies many of the imperialist dynamics. I think that this is an anecdote which kind of um, spells out the uneven distribution of power within the Commonwealth. Uh, The Queen's former private secretary, Martin Charteris, described the Queen descending upon the Commonwealth as being like nanny or mother, and that she could discipline her unruly children with a single look, no more of your bloody nonsense. Um, And that maternal image was really central, I think, to the Queen steering the monarchy through a time of profound change, the end of formal empire, at least, and also the media revolution. Prince Charles coming to the throne as already an old man, as somebody who's Uh, private life has been splashed all over the front pages of British tabloids. It's a very different thing. It's, I think, in some ways been tarnished by uh, some of these uh, more intrusive press practices. And I wonder if what we'll see is a redoubling on monarchical fervor on the part of the press in order to make up for their former uh, bad behavior. Now, democracy now isn't British media. Would you call, Ash, for the abolition of the monarchy? I'm a Republican. I think that a modern that has democracy a different meaning in the United should States should be subject to democratic uh, accountability. Uh, pardon, oh, yeah, I understand that. So right, by a Republican, I mean that a, a monarch, constitutional or not, uh, should not be the head of state. I think that we should have an elected president, because one of the problems with having um, the kind of uncodified constitution that we have here in the UK, whilst also having a so-called constitutional monarch, is that the exercise of power in some ways is very, very opaque. I can give you another example of this. The Privy Council, which is made up of British lords and MPs, ministers and former ministers, is still the highest court of appeal for many countries in the Commonwealth, countries which in include British overseas territories of, shall we say, ambiguous status, like the British Virgin Islands, which are notorious in 
international tax haven. And that ambiguous legal status and the fact that the Privy Council is still the highest court of appeal means that in some ways the British Virgin Islands can operate as this kind of, you know, dark twin sibling of the City of London. So if the City of London isn't good enough for you to hide your wealth from uh, public authorities, then you can just stash it in the British Virgin Islands and you know, legal proceedings will hardly ever see in the light of day because the government of the British Virgin Islands and the Privy Council and the British government are always arguing about whose responsibility it actually is. So constitutional monarchy allows for that very opaque exercise of power, which I think is in itself um, politically toxic. But even if that wasn't the case, I think as a modern state, we should be looking towards an elected head of state rather than one who was placed there by this narrative of bloodline superiority. Well, I want to thank you all for being with us. And an interesting fact, even as um, Harry and Meghan Markle um, left the royal family um, and charged the royal family with racism, uh, their children will now become prince and princess, Archie and Lisbeth Diana, um, who live in the United States, uh, because Harry's father, uh, Prince Charles, has now ascended to the throne and they are his grandchildren. that's King Charles III. Ash Sarker, thanks so much for being with us, contributing editor at Navarra Media in London. Pedro Welch, historian and former chair of the Barbados Reparations Task Force, joining us from Barbados, just back from London. Harvard University professor Maya Jasanoff will link to your New York Times op-ed, Mourn the Queen, Not Her Empire. And University of Cambridge professor Priya Gopal, author of Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance, and British Descent. Next up, no sacrifice zones. Frontline communities from Appalachia rally in Washington to protest Senator Manchin's Mountain Valley Pipeline. Stay with us. In 1649, to St. George's Hill. A ragged band they called The diggers came to show the people's will They defied the landlords They defied the laws They were the dispossessed Reclaiming what was theirs We come in peace, they said To dig and sow We come to work the lands in common And to make the waste grounds grow This earth divided We will make whole So it will be a common treasury for all The sin of property we do disdain No man has any right to buy and sell the earth for private gain By theft and murder they took the land Now everywhere the walls spring up at their command They make the laws to chain us well The clergy dazzle us with heaven or they damn us into hell We will not worship the God they serve The God of greed who feeds the rich while poor men starve The World Turned Upside Down by Billy Bragg To see his performances at Democracy Now! and interviews, you can go to democracynow.org I'm Amy Goodman. As California faces a record-breaking heat wave, climate activists joined indigenous and Appalachian groups at a rally in Washington, D.C. Thursday to protest against the Mountain Valley Pipeline. The protest came a month after President 
President Biden signed the $739 billion Inflation Reduction Act, which included major concessions to West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, the biggest recipient of fossil fuel money in Congress. One provision expedites fossil fuel permitting, including for the controversial MVP—that's Mountain Valley Pipeline. If built, it'll carry 2 billion cubic feet of frack gas across more than a 1,000 streams and wetlands in Appalachia, including parts of West Virginia. On Thursday, Senator Bernie Sanders, the independent of Vermont, slammed what he described as a disastrous side deal. In the coming weeks and months, the Senate has a fundamental choice to make. We can listen to the fossil fuel industry and the politicians they pay, who are spending huge amounts of money on lobbying and campaign contributions to pass this dirty side deal. Or we can listen to the scientists and the environmental community who are telling us loudly and clearly to reject this ideal and eliminate the $15 billion in tax breaks and subsidies Congress is already providing to big oil and gas companies each and every year. Mr. President, while the legislative text of this ideal has not been made public, according to a one-page summary that was released last month, this bill would make it easier for the fossil fuel industry to receive permits to complete some of the dirtiest and most polluting oil and gas projects in America. Specifically, this deal would approve the 6.6 billion Mountain Valley Pipeline a 303-mile frack gas pipeline spanning from West Virginia to Virginia and potentially on to North Carolina. We're talking about a pipeline that would generate emissions equivalent to 37 coal plants or over 27 million cars each and every year. Mr. President, it is hard for me to understand why anyone anyone who is concerned about climate change would consider for one second voting to approve a pipeline that would be equivalent to putting 27 million more cars on the road each and every year. Senator Sanders spoke on the same day as protesters rallied in Washington, D.C., against the Mountain Valley Pipeline. We're joined now by two guests who took part in the protests. Russell Chisholm is the Mountain Valley Watch Coordinator for the Power Coalition, P-O-W-H-R. That's the Protect Our Water Heritage Rights Coalition. Uh, he's also an Army veteran of Operation Desert Storm. Crystal Cavalier-Keck is a citizen of the Okanichi Band of the Sapani Nation in North Carolina, chair of the Environmental Justice Committee for the NAACP. Um, welcome both to Democracy Now! Um, Crystal Cavalier-Keck, let's begin with you. Um, and if I mispronounce the name of your nation, please pronounce it correctly for us. But talk about why you're in Washington and why you went to the White House as well for a meeting. Meku, thank you so much for having me here. Well, it is the Okanichi Band of the Saponi Nation. And I am here—well, we were here yesterday to lobby Congress, but we were also here to have a rally. 
And we organized this rally in less than 30 days. And we were here to have our voices heard all across Turtle Island, which is the United States, to show that our fights are very similar. And we do not want this dirty deal that Senator Joe Manchin is pushing forward. Um, that's, that is the number one reason we were here. But we were here to uplift our voices, especially our indigenous communities here on the southeast coast. We are often invisibilized and we're not really listened to and heard to. And talk about just what the Mountain Valley Pipeline, what kind of, um, uh, map, describe the map for us and how it goes from West Virginia to North Carolina and what it would mean. So the map, it starts in West Virginia and it goes through the mountaintops. And on these mountaintops are our sacred burial grounds of our Monacan, Saponi, and Okanichi nations. And, you know, the MVP, they call these burial mounds rock piles. And they often say these do not exist, which often makes us, they're trying to extinct us or genocide us again. Um, but it's going through these very sacred mountains, going through waters, boring under rivers, and these sacred waters of like the Roanoke, the Dan, and the Haw River, which is very sacred to my tribe and my community. This pipeline, the MVP Southgate, Mountain Valley Pipeline Southgate Extension, is coming five miles from my home. It's also going through the backyard of my relative, Renee, who lives in Rockingham County. And so it's going to destroy a lot of water. And what these companies don't understand, they don't come and consult with us. And these agencies like FERC do not do a good job of listening to the community. And we are here to talk about the NEPA process, which is the National Environmental Policy Act, which this dirty deal is going to gut, is going to cut the time in half of what we, especially here on the East Coast, the um, state-recognized tribes, we get to respond to that. We get, um, I believe, about a seven-year period to respond to that due to the NEPA process, which helps all tribes with the consultation process. But when they gut this, this limits our time to respond back to these dirty pipelines and dirty asphalt plants that are coming through our communities. And usually these agencies, they don't do a good job of advertising the comment periods. So therefore, I feel that they're helping these um, these dirty these dirty companies. Um, Russell Chisholm, uh, if you could talk about um, what you discovered would happen to your community in Virginia if the Mountain Valley Pipeline is completed, and what stage is it at right now? Thank you, Amy. Good morning. Um, currently, the best way to describe the stage of the Mountain Valley Pipeline is segmented all along those 303 miles. For example, the first incomplete stream crossing that they come to is less than three-quarters of a mile from milepost zero on the project. So what is remaining is some of the most difficult and challenging work and all of the heavy construction work adjacent to, around, under, streams, wetlands, rivers, creeks. Um, and Dr. Cavalier has described it well. These are water sources that feed our communities, um, feed our households, that people use to take care of their livestock. Um, and all of that runs downstream, um, destroys habitat, 
uh, and puts people's health and safety at risk. So there is a lot of heavy construction remaining on that project, and yet there is a lot that we can also save, which is why we continue to show up, continue to show up and link up with other frontline communities to stand together as we did yesterday to say this project must be stopped and these extractive industries that create sacrifice zones must also be stopped wherever they are happening. And Dr. Cavalier-Keck, what do you say to Joe Manchin, to the senator, the largest recipient of fossil fuel money in Congress, um, uh, his power, and what Bernie Sanders called this dirty side deal? What do you say to the other senators? Um, so they need to wake up. I honestly believe, how could this not be an ethics violation? But you are killing millions of people, millions of animals. And you're, you're ultimately killing our water. This is how we are going to survive. This is how the human race will survive. And it's at your hands that you're causing the destruction and death of this. And I just, I just can't believe that this is happening. Like I was talking earlier today, like this is how government works. These backdoor side room deals to help a child who throws a tantrum tantrum because he can't get the MVP pushed through. Like he's being very childish. And you know, just disappointed, like you're letting your constituents down. And also the other senators who are not saying like, whoa, wait, what's going on? Or the other House of Representatives do not give in to his his demands. Like he is literally twisting your arm behind your back to get what he wants. Like this is not how government should work. And the connection of the MVP developers to Joe Manchin, the senator? Oh, my, most definitely. Next Era, they donated to his campaign, as well as I believe they donated to Chuck Schumer's campaign, too. Like, how are you guys not in ethics violation? You should have recused yourself from this and appointed someone else to do this. Matter of fact, listen to Bernie Sanders. He should have been heading up this, and he would have made sure we wouldn't have had no side deal, especially the MVP coming through our backyard. That's horrible. Like, in this side deal, well, this whole IRA, you're going to give the IRA and you're going to still push fossil fuels? What? What is that? Like, come on, President Biden. Like, why did you sign that? So you just think it's okay to, like, give a little bit of fossil fuels, but it's okay because we're going to give you, what, $700 billion? No, I, I don't think so. Crystal Cavalier-Keck, I want to thank you so much for being with us of the Okanichi Band of Saponi Nation in North Carolina, chair of the Environmental Justice Committee for the NAACP of Alamance County, and Russell Chisholm of the Mountain Valley Watch Coordinator for the Power Coalition. That does it for our broadcast. And we end today on a very sad note. Well, we want to extend our deepest condolences to our Democracy Now! producer, Maria Inez Tarasena, on the death of your grandmother, Ana Elsa Herrera, in Guatemala. Mama Elsa was 94 years old. And also, dear Maria, on the passing of your brother, David Miller Flores, in a tragic car accident in Arizona. He had turned 26 years old last Sunday. Our condolences to your whole family. That does it for our show, Democracy Now!, produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Gesner, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Terasena, Sharina Nadora, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Hani Massoud, Mary Conlin, our executive director, Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.